Good morning, everyone. Welcome again. This morning, we are continuing our series through the book of Romans. And today, we're actually going to be looking at one of the most interesting but challenging sections of the entire letter, Romans chapters 9 through 11. Now, this is probably the most difficult section of the book of Romans. Readers struggle to understand how this section fits into the larger flow of thought of the letter. Scholars disagree about exactly what Paul is talking about and what he means in this passage. There are plenty of hard truths, confusing metaphors, and lots and lots of Old Testament references. But as challenging as these three chapters are, they are an important part of the Apostle Paul's thesis. In many ways, I think this section is actually the heart of Paul's letter. And it captures the theological and practical center of what he wants to say. It's a rewarding passage to study. And understanding it is really worthwhile. So we're going to do something a little bit different uh, for these three chapters. Up to this point, most of you know that we've been uh, going through Romans at kind of a snail's pace, trying to look at things at a very uh, close perspective, reading maybe 15 to 20 verses at a time. Uh, for these three chapters, we're going to kind of do the opposite of that. We're going to be looking at these chapters as one big unit, as a whole. And the reason for that isn't that the details aren't important, but it's that the argument, it's difficult to make over the span of several weeks or months. And so we want to just kind of tackle this all together so that we can appreciate the big picture of what Paul is trying to teach us. And so today, I'll be talking about kind of the uh, larger, bigger picture, uh, the theological center of these three chapters. And then next week, I'll be looking at the more practical implications of Romans 9 to 11. So let's go ahead and begin our uh, journey. And we'll do so by reading the opening few verses of Romans 9. And these are going to introduce us to kind of the issue and the topic that we'll be addressing for these next two weeks. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Now, there is an incredible contrast here that I don't want you to miss. Think about how last week's passage, last week's message ended. It's this high point of the letter, this moment of absolute joy and triumph as we talk about our assurance in Jesus. That nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Not height, not depth, not death, not life, not angel, not demons, nothing. And we have been steadily climbing to this point throughout the letter. From the depths of sin and unrighteousness to the work of Jesus on the cross to the defeat of sin and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And now we have this moment where Paul says, you can be sure that you are in God's love. And this is a moment of, again, joy and triumph. But then we get to chapter 9, just verses later, and you see this sudden and dramatic shift. Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. That is powerful and colorful language. Paul is saying, I am in pain. I'm suffering. I'm dying here, you guys. And what is it that creates this sudden shift in mood and tone? Well, he tells us in verse 4, it's the people of Israel. The chosen people, God's people. And you can see Paul's train of thought pretty clearly here. As he works his way through the promises of God's faithful love and blessing to those in Christ, he remembers God's promise of blessing and love to Israel. And it stops him in his tracks because he knows that these people, his people, the people of Israel, most of them are not experiencing this promise, this grace, this redemption, this assurance. And it stirs up a great sorrow in him. And the essence of the question he asks in this opening paragraph is, is what about Israel? What is their place now in this story? For this nation who was God's historical people, the people of the old covenant, what now? How can it be that they of all people are not receiving the fulfillment of God's promise in Jesus? Now, on first glance, this might seem like a topic for just a bunch of scholars to discuss and debate. Might seem unnecessary or pointless for the average Christian to answer this question. But the reality is, is that we really do need answers. Because what's at stake here isn't just the future of one ethnic people group. What's at stake is the very truth that Paul has been after for this entire letter. The righteousness of God. God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. See, at the heart of Romans is Paul's unflinching belief that God keeps his promises, that he's faithful to the covenant, that his word is good and can be counted on. And this is an absolutely essential truth for us too. Because if we are to trust in God's promises to us, if we're to trust in the promise of Romans 8, this truth of no condemnation, no separation for those in Jesus, no matter what, then we have to believe that God hasn't forsaken his promise to Israel. 
couple weeks ago, our, our family had a chance to go up to Brian Head, Utah for a short ski trip with Alyssa's parents. And one of the highlights of the trip, other than going skiing, was getting a chance to go on a snowmobiling tour to Cedar Breaks National Monument. And Alyssa and I both love snowmobiling. It was the kids' first time being able to go. And we had a blast. It was a great time. But anytime you go on a trip like this, a tour like this, whether it's snowmobiling or whitewater rafting or skydiving or whatever, one of the most important things, one of the things that's most essential to having a good trip is having a good and competent guide. Whether it's any of these things, the guide has a big impact on your experience. You want somebody who's, you know, kind of makes you feel comfortable, who's able to hold a conversation, who's friendly and not too awkward. You want somebody who's knowledgeable, who understands, you know, the machines and is able to explain what to do and what not to do. But on the most basic level, and, and probably the most important thing, is you want somebody who's going to keep you safe, who's going to be able to take you out, make sure you don't get hurt, and bring you home. So imagine if you showed up to a tour, and your guide came up and said, hey, how's it going? My name is Dave. I'm going to be taking you out today. And you said, hey, nice to meet you, Dave. We're really excited. You know, just out of curiosity, how long have you been doing this? And what if Dave said, you know, actually, you guys are only my second tour. And you know, to be honest, the last tour didn't really go that great. The group had a little trouble following directions, and things got a little bit messy, and they didn't make it back. I don't know about you, but I would be like, hey, no thanks, Dave, why don't you go ahead and find me the guide who brings everyone home? Now, I know this isn't exactly the same. I hope it's not too sacrilegious to compare God to a snowmobiling tour guide named Dave. But at the same time, this is kind of why it matters for the church. If I am going to stake my life on the promises of God, this covenant, this radical system of grace that God is going to love me no matter what. No matter how much I sin, no matter how many times I make mistakes, no matter how many times I fail over and over and over again to be who I'm supposed to be, if I'm going to believe this, then the idea that maybe God throughout Israel for falling short is pretty tough to swallow. Because it begs the question, it plants this seed of doubt in our mind. That if I mess up too many times, if I mess up in the wrong way, is God going to throw out me? Now obviously it is different. Our covenant is based on Jesus, on grace, on the Spirit. But at the end of the day, both covenants are built on the promise of God. Of God saying, this is the way to salvation. And so to believe that God is always faithful, that God always keeps his promises, is really important.
And Paul understands this. Paul understands that these are the stakes. Because before he gets to anything else, he answers this question that's kind of lingering in the air. In verse 6, he says, It is not as though God's word has failed. Paul knows that the very word and promise of God are at stake. And so this morning, I want to briefly take you through Paul's argument, his defense of God's faithfulness, his defense of God as a promise-keeping God, how it is that God has redeemed you and I through a new covenant without being unfaithful or untrue to Israel. And again, we're not going to look at every single verse or every single argument that Paul makes. But instead, I want to look at the three key ideas from these chapters that show us God's faithfulness to his promise and his people. So let's go ahead and dive in with our first point, our first truth from this passage. And it's that true Israel was defined by grace and faith. Paul begins by making an important distinction. God's people, the people of his promise, were not defined by ethnicity, but by faith. Let's go ahead and read a little bit of the context of this passage. Uh, Romans 9, verses 6 to 8. Verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Verse 6 establishes this key idea. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now this may seem a little bit like a, a bit of a contradiction. But here's what Paul is saying. There is a difference between those who are physically a part of this ethnic people group and those who are spiritually and truly the people of God's promise to Abraham. And Paul is making a nuanced argument here, and he's assuming that his reader is intimately familiar with the Old Testament story of God and Israel. And to understand this passage, we need to, under, we need to remember some key truths about God's relationship with his people. First, God never says that every Israelite will be saved because of their physical heritage. God choosing Israel was never him saying every person who's in this group gets to go to heaven. And everybody who's outside of that, you guys go to hell. It wasn't that simple. It was much more nuanced than that. See, God did call Abraham and his descendants, he called this ethnic people group to be a special people, to have a special relationship with him. And he loved them and cared for them in special ways, oftentimes miraculous ways. 
He led them out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land. He blessed them with his presence and favor. But his relationship with Israel had a purpose from the beginning. He wanted them to be a conduit or a vessel of his blessing and salvation. So that through God's relationship with Israel, through things like his presence, through the law, both Israel and the nations could come to truly know God. To understand his goodness and holiness and love and ultimately come to a saving faith. That through God's relationship with Israel, both Jews and Gentiles could be made right with God through faith. Let me show you a very simple, poorly drawn diagram to make this as simple as possible. So you begin with the entire world, all the nations, Jew and Gentile. And we know that God wants to save everyone. And so in order to do this, he calls physical Israel, a group within this larger group. And physical Israel experiences special blessing, God's presence, God's love, his law, and guidance. But all of this is meant to create a different third group, God's desire for true Israel, the people of God, the children of God. And that was not the same as physical Israel, because in order to enter true Israel, you had to have faith. That's a point that we talked about several weeks ago in Romans 4, that what justified Abraham and his descendants wasn't anything good about him. It wasn't physical characteristics. It wasn't ethnicity. It was trust in the promise of God for restoration and redemption. And one of the big points that Paul makes throughout chapter 9 of Romans is that throughout Israel's history, there's been a clear difference between physical Israel and true Israel. The word he uses, which he borrows from the prophets, is the word remnant. That out of a people who was constantly turning to sin, constantly turning to idolatry, ethnic Israel over and over and over again entered these cycles of sin and wickedness and faithlessness. But in spite of that, God in his love and patience preserved a remnant of faithful people who trusted God, who didn't rely on the law, but on the promise and faithfulness of God. And again, that remnant was defined not by physical descent, not by being good, not by keeping the law, but by faith. Now this is a really important starting point for Paul's defense of God's faithfulness and justice. That God has always worked according to the same principle. That we receive his promise by grace through faith. And so when we look at God's promises in the Old Testament to Israel, while he desired for every single person in Israel and in the world to receive them, the reality was that ethnicity was never enough. The law was never enough. It was always faith. 
And he quotes the prophet Isaiah in making this point crystal clear. Though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant, only the faithful few will be saved. See, God's love and justice are always the same for Israel and for all of humanity. Now that brings us to our second key truth this morning, that Jesus comes and expands true Israel, but ethnic Israel rejected him. Uh, Let's read another short passage from the end of Romans 9 into Romans 10, beginning in Romans 9.30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained the goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The tragedy of Israel's story is that God did exactly what he said he would. He brings his reign and redemption to everyone, to all people, through Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of God's faithfulness to Israel. He's bringing Jesus to be the Savior and King he promised, to be light and blessing to both Jew and Gentile. But while the Gentiles receive him, Israel says, no thanks. See, the tragedy isn't that God rejects Israel. It's that Israel rejects God in this moment of his greatest fulfillment and faithfulness. Uh, This past week, I had uh, one of the least fun experiences I've had in a while. On Monday, I had to go to the dentist to have a root canal. Now, if you don't know what a root canal is, I am right there with you. I still have no idea what they did. I don't really know what happened in there. All I know is that I came in, they numbed up my mouth, stuck a bunch of instruments in there, and drilled, shaved, and scraped at my tooth. At one point, they stuck something in there, and smoke started coming out, so I guess they did some burning, some stuff too. But it really wasn't fun. It wasn't the most pleasant thing. It wasn't horrible, but... I would rather have not had that happen. Now, this illustration isn't 
meant to explore the concept of blame. But let's talk about why I had this root canal. Who's responsible for it? Was it my dentist's fault for not taking better care of my teeth? Or was it my fault for not going to the dentist for the 15 years before I had this root canal? Was it my fault that I didn't listen to my wife, my mom, my best friend, and pretty much everyone in my life who I told that I hadn't been to the dentist in 15 years, and they said to me, hey, dude, you should go to the dentist. Was it my fault that I didn't listen to any of them? I had the choice. The invitation was there. I have insurance, but I chose to say no. And so as much as I, you know, kind of felt bad for myself, I was feeling kind of lousy, and as much as I appreciated the sympathy I received from kind people like Alyssa and my mom, I knew I, you know, I didn't really deserve it. I just kind of had to suck it up and say, this is what I chose. This is what I decided. And again, look, this passage is not about assigning blame to Israel. But Paul wants to be very clear that Israel had a choice. In fact, they were the first ones who were invited to experience grace in Jesus. When Jesus steps on the scene, he says, hey, I'm going first to Israel. I'm bringing the message of the kingdom to God's people. God didn't reject them. In fact, he kept his promise in the clearest way he could. Jesus said that he was the Messiah who God had promised in the prophets. He said he was the shepherd who God said would lead them out of darkness. He said he was the Davidic king who would bring the true kingdom. He called himself light, manna from heaven, living water. He spoke the language of the promise as clearly as he could. But rather than receive him with joy, most of Israel stumbled over him. They missed it. They chose to reject God's plan and purpose in Jesus. Now as tragic as that is, it's not the end of the story. Paul has one more point to make in showing us God's faithfulness, and it's that God's love for Israel endures. And that's our final point this morning, that God loves ethnic Israel, and he is working to bring them home. Let's look at just a, a few different passages from Romans 11. Verses 1 and 2, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Verses 11 and 12. Again I ask, did they stumble, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches 
will, will their full inclusion bring? Verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. God says, I remember my covenant. And I do love Israel. I haven't forgotten them. I haven't given up on them. Despite their rejection, they're still special to me. And throughout these verses, we see God showing his love for Israel in several ways. First, there is still a remnant of faithful Israel that God has preserved. And again, this idea of remnant is so powerful because throughout Israel's history, it has been a reminder of God's grace, a reminder of God's patience that in the midst of these horrible cycles of disobedience and sin, God has always preserved a faithful Israel, a remnant of faithful Israel who would continue to walk in faith and carry on the legacy of God's promise to Abraham. And Paul says, hey, I'm evidence of this. God can't have given up on all of Israel because I'm here. I'm a Jew. I'm part of the tribe of Benjamin. And God has called me. In fact, the entire early church was built on Jewish leaders, men like Peter and John. The gospel went out first to the synagogues, to Jewish people. And even to this day, there are many from Jewish backgrounds who recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And God is faithful and has been faithful to ethnic Israel through this remnant that continues on to this day. But on top of that, Paul points us to this idea that somehow God isn't done drawing Israel to himself and drawing Israel to Jesus. Somehow a greater mass of Israel will join the church, Jew and Gentile, as true Israel, proclaiming Jesus as Savior and Lord. And you know, we don't know exactly how this will happen or when this will happen. And getting into the details is really complicated. But the idea that Paul makes clear is that God isn't done with Israel. God hasn't abandoned them. And that it's his commitment to show them his mercy and grace. So we see in, in these three points, Paul's resounding answer to the question of God's faithfulness. That God is and always has been a God who keeps his promises. That he is a God defined not by a desire to punish and kick out, 
but as a God who's defined by a longing for reconciliation. A God who stands with open arms waiting for his wayward people to return home. And this God is for all people, always, both Jew and Gentile. You know, in a way, this passage mirrors the parable of the prodigal son. In this story that Jesus tells, there's a younger son of a father. And this son is a little bit like the Gentiles because he begins the story by going off to live his own way, by rejecting the father and living in sin and selfishness and wickedness. But eventually he comes home to receive grace from the father, to experience the joy of a lavish party made possible by a great sacrifice. There's also another son, and this son is a little bit like Israel, who had a long history with the father, who dutifully stayed with him, but at the same time seemed to miss out on the loving heart of his dad. And this son has now turned away, rejecting the party the father has chosen to throw, not realizing that the party wasn't just for the younger son who came home. The party was for the whole family at being together. See, the one constant in this parable is the father. At various times, both children make mistakes. Both children are away from the father. Both children reject him. Both children completely miss out on who he is. Both children fail to receive his love. And yet, from the beginning of the parable to the end, the father never changes. The father is always good, always loving, always patient, always ready to receive those who turn to him. Henry Nouwen says this about the father. Here is a God I want to believe in. A father who, from the beginning of creation, has stretched out his arms in merciful blessing, never forcing himself on anyone, but always waiting, never letting his arms drop down in despair, but always hoping that his children will return so that he can speak words of love to them and let his tired arms rest on their shoulders. His only desire is to bless. That even now, this is the Father's posture towards Israel. It's pretty amazing. And it's deeply important for us. Because it confirms that this is the Father's posture towards us and always will be. Because it's not a decision he's making, it's who he is who he always has been and always will be, Invi a God inviting his people home, inviting as many people as he can to join the party. And this is why Paul can end this entire three-section story with an ending that's as surprising as the beginning. In the beginning, he goes from this great joy to genuine sorrow. 
But he ends it going from sorrow to true praise and thanksgiving. Even in the midst of his brokenness over Israel's current state, he's able to rejoice in the character of God. Because even though he knows he can't understand everything, he trusts in God's plan. He trusts in God's promise. He trusts in God's faithfulness. And he realizes that the true mystery of the gospel isn't who's saved and who's not or why certain people are saved and why certain people aren't. The true mystery of the gospel is how God could be so good in sending Jesus so that everyone who turns to him can come home. And so chapter 11 ends with these words, this song, and we'll end this morning with them as well. Verses 33 of chapter 11. This is from the message translation. Have you ever come on anything quite like this extravagant generosity of God? This deep, deep wisdom. It's way over our heads. We'll never figure it out. Is there anyone around who can explain God? Anyone smart enough to tell him what to do? Anyone who has done him such a huge favor that God has to ask his advice? Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. Everything ends up in him. Always glory. Always praise. Yes, yes, yes. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. That time and time again, you reveal yourself to be faithful, to be perfectly loving. That even in spite of our sinfulness, even in spite of our rejection of you at times, that you always wait with open arms. God, we thank you that we can count on your promise as we think about our lives and our sin and all the sin that we will commit in the future. That we know that we're safe in your promise. That your love for your people, your love for the faithful, your love for your church doesn't change. So God, I pray that you would strengthen our assurance, continue to strengthen this confidence we have and the promise that we have in you. God, we love you and worship you in Jesus' name.